Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome back to the All-American Brit Podcast on the Believe Podcasting Network. I am your host, Johnny McEwen. Today is Tuesday, April 20th, and this week in sport, 47-year-old Stuart Sink is a winner again on the PGA Tour, Champions League, European Super League, and a shocking sacking to talk about in the world of football. But first, we need to talk about the three-game series that went on this weekend in San Diego. It's to the World Major League Baseball. The red-hot LA Dodgers rolled into town. It's the first of 19 scheduled games with the Padres this season. Three games in the books, but 16 more to go between the two squads. And if it's possible, they might all end up being must-watch TV. The first game Friday night in San Diego was electric. Managers Dave Roberts and Jace Tingler talked after the game about how the whole crowd was just really into it. Tensions were high between the two squads leading up to the game, during the game. The whole night felt like a playoff game, felt like a game in October. However, it is the first matchup between these two squads in April. Nearly five hours long Friday night, Dodgers took the lead in the top of the ninth. The Padres rallied in the bottom of the ninth and tied it, extra innings. It took until the 12th, Corey Seager hit a home run that just ignited the offense. Five runs scored, the Padres didn't answer in the bottom of the 12th. 11-6 to the final score, but that in no way reflects just how tight and back and forth this game was. Runs scored on wild pitches, tough infield plays. Luke Rayleigh called up for the injured Cody Bellinger. He got his first major league home run and Fernando Tatis who had just returned to the lineup after being out with injury hit a home run in his second at bat back you know this game had everything including a benches clearing in the bottom of the 10th game was tied 6-6 Dennis Santana pitching to Jorge Mateo plunks him right in the thigh few words exchanged between hitter and batter they start walking toward one another and then at this point everyone jumped from the dugout bullpen start jogging out the whole deal didn't ever get to full punches being thrown but there was so much tension and if tensions weren't high enough already 6-6 in extra innings there seemed to be even more electricity pumping through Petco Park on Friday night absolutely no intent to hit the batter on this one for me there's some history between these guys in the postseason but there's a guy on third base with only one out Santana's trying to limit the damage he's not trying to use this moment to send a message for you know the people make arguments about how guys have intent every time they hit you know somebody and I, I hate it when commentators or, or players or, or people assume that this is, oh, he's sending a message hitting him here. Why would he try and hit him in a tied game in extra innings with a guy on third base? He's trying to limit the damage. There was just absolutely no intent there. After the five runs in the 12th inning, Jake Cronenworth, the left fielder, actually pitched in the bottom of the 12th for the Padres. They had used so many pitchers. Jace Tingler was already thinking about the two games coming up and a long season up ahead. So they had Cronenworth finish it off in the 12th. San Diego's used nine 
pitchers, 10, including the left fielder, in the 12-inning game. So then to Saturday. Saturday started as a complete pitchers duel between Clayton Kershaw and Hugh Darvish, both going head-to-head, pitch-for-pitch. Both teams were certainly happy to see their starters going long, taking some of the pressure off of each bullpen. The first run came in the fifth inning. Kershaw actually at the plate, bases loaded, and Kershaw had a great at-bat, fighting off a few pitches, really swatting at them. He said in his post-interview that he was just trying to be annoying up there, and it certainly worked. He worked the walk with the bases loaded, brought across the run. He had eight strikeouts and only gave up two hits for the Dodgers, Clayton Kershaw. Justin Turner hit a home run in the ninth for insurance, but the Padres were in it until the last out. Two-run game, two runners on base, Tommy Pham at the plate. He hits a ball out to center field. Mookie starts charging after it. If this thing gets down, both runs could come across the plate. We could have a tie game and more extra inning baseball in San Diego. Mookie's hustling after it, dives out, and makes the most unbelievable catch clips it into the heel of his glove as he's sliding on his stomach on the outfield grass. He took his other hand and whacked it up against the mitt to secure the ball, slid up to his knees and starts pounding on his chest, screaming in celebration. He knew he'd made the play. He knew he didn't trap the ball. He knew he came up with it properly. A walk-off catch from Mookie Betts. Truly an amazing, amazing play. So then it was to Sunday afternoon, Trevor Bauer on the mound for the Dodgers and Blake Snell for the Padres. It was the first time that the Dodgers would have seen Snell since game six of the World Series. People will remember that game. Kevin Cash, the Tampa Bay manager, took out Snell and it was a huge question mark as to why he had been dominating, but he didn't want to see Snell go a third time around the lineup. So very controversially, he pulled Snell in that game. But now here is Snell on a new organization, a team that the Dodgers are going to face a lot. And Blake off to a pretty good start this season. But Saturday was definitely the biggest start that Blake Snell has had in a Padre uniform. And he started off pretty well. Both him and Bauer pitched pretty strong to start but it was Snell who faltered first a leadoff single to Will Smith and then a two-run home run from Chris Taylor Snell then went on to strike out the next three in the inning Padres took a three to two lead in the bottom of the eighth close play at third with Tatis and Turner Tatis just hung on to the tip of the base with his toe they initially called him out they reviewed the play to overturned it Tatis in the replay you could see he just kept the very very tip of his toe in his cleat on the base overturn the play he then stays safe Tommy Pham then comes up and gets a huge knock Pham has been ice cold of late his teammates were amped to see him get the knock and bring in another two runs and that would be all they would need on Sunday Mark Melanson came in for the save and the Padres take game three five to two Three really great games in San Diego this weekend, and the wait won't be long for more Dodger Padre baseball. They face off again this weekend, and no matter where you live in the country, you'll be able to see it on Sunday night. National broadcast ESPN Sunday Night Baseball will be Dodgers, Padres, 7 p.m. on the East Coast and 4 p.m. out West. You know, when I lived in New York, I had quite a few late nights of staying up and watching Dodger games, and it's not always the easiest. Most games don't start until about 10 p.m. out East. And I've always had a sense that there's a, a big perception, a big difference uh, when it comes to the coasts and how they perceive each other when it comes to baseball. I'm not the first person to make this argument, but I believe there is a massive East Coast bias in baseball. 
there's a perception that the West Coast are, you know, these youngsters in the game. They don't have the same kind of tradition or centuries-long history as the Cubs or Cardinals, the Red Sox or Yankees. But I think we've entered a new era in baseball. There's a really strong argument that could be made that the two best teams in baseball are the Dodgers and the Padres. And we're going to be treated to a ton more baseball from these two teams. I'm personally really looking forward to it. And I hope the whole of the baseball world is looking forward to it. You know, speaking of the Yankees, it's, they've been off to a really tough start this season. The worst start, in fact, since 1966, when they finished 10th in the American League that year. The Yankees have been so dominant for so long. And I think it's ultimately a good thing for baseball when the Yankees are good. But I think it'll be a long time till we see a Yankee team that was as dominant as those, you know, Derek Jeter, early 2000s team. But the fall from Grace has been a huge one. They were swept last weekend by the Rays. The Yankees now have the worst record in the American League. You know, many thought that this would be the turnaround year for the Yankees. On paper, they look scary. I even got some flack on it and my my projections did not have the Yankees winning this division. And, you know, they're going to have to make a real push later in the season. This has been a really tough tough stretch for them I'm not I, I say that about my predictions but I'm, I'm not relishing in seeing this Yankee team struggle I, I hope they break their streak of five straight losses they play tonight against an injured brave side so look to see if the Yankees can turn around what has been a tough stretch quite a few cool matchups this week coming in Major League Baseball a couple of interleague matchups that'll be interesting to watch the Orioles and the Marlins are going at it. Of course, the Braves and Yankees. Dodgers and Mariners played last night, and they play again today. And the Cubs and Mets start up a three-game series this week that'll certainly be interesting to watch. Well, there's almost too much to talk about in the world of football. We could simply talk about how the Champions League semi-final matches are set. Chelsea are going to take on Real Madrid. Paris Saint-Germain taking on Manchester City. Kickoff starts next Tuesday and Wednesday. The Carabao Cup final is this Sunday between Manchester City and Tottenham. Tottenham came with a big change, though, on Monday morning. Jose Mourinho has been sacked. It was only 18 months ago that Mourinho took over the spot at Spurs, but now just a couple of days before the Carabao Cup final, Mourinho has been sacked. 2008, the last time that the Spurs won a trophy after a match. They hope to get the silverware on Sunday, but it won't be under the leadership of Mourinho. Jose's future in managing really comes into question. Psychologically, Mourinho may have damaged this club for months, maybe years to come. The way he dealt with the personalities in the club is so cutthroat, so intense. He had this kind of vigour in him still that he kind of showed at Manchester United when he was managing there. And poor form and a big decision made by Tottenham to let Mourinho go. But all of this feels pointless to talk about <laughs> because the very nature of competitive football feels in flux. All anyone's really been talking about in the world of football in the last couple of days has been the creating and this initial launch of the Super League. If you don't know what the Super League is, let me break it down. Twelve teams have all signed on as founding members of the Super League with the intention to compete in a playoff-style tournament yearly between some of the biggest names in the sport. The 12 teams in the Super League right now are Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester City, Manchester United, Liverpool, Tottenham, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus, AC Milan and Inter Milan. The Super League's chairman is also the owner of Real Madrid 
the vice president of the Super League, is owner of Manchester United. These big teams have always considered the possibility of forming a Super League that guarantees marquee matchups each season. There are already sizable investments into the creation of this league, and the bottom line truth about all of this is it's about money. And the owners of these teams see that the creation of an insulated, no-relegation, super-style tournament as a financial opportunity that is just far too good to pass up. But if this action is taken, it changes the entire fabric of competition in football. And it makes a lot of teams essentially irrelevant. There has been major pushback from fans and analysts alike. Gary Neville called it an attack by six wealthy families to the integrity of our game. Not only the competitive repercussions, but the financial repercussions for the entirety of the football pyramid would be affected by this move. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has made comments condemning the idea of a Super League. The president of the FA, who is Prince William, has come out and said that he does not believe that this is in the best nature for the footballing pyramid, for all of these lower, smaller clubs that benefit from a wealthy and powerful Premier League. UEFA and FIFA have said that any of the players that compete on these Super League teams could face restrictions from the Champions League and Euros and World Cups. This would mean that players who play on Super League teams wouldn't be able to compete in a World Cup. Can you imagine a Portuguese side without Cristiano Ronaldo? An Argentina side without Messi? The repercussions of this decision are truly unfathomable. It's almost like a revolution is occurring currently in football and the chips will fall as they may. A lot more is to come and the story is developing constantly. My big take on this is just look at the Champions League semi-final matchups that are set for next week. Three of those four teams would be in the Super League. Can you imagine the level of competition would just completely shift if those teams were no longer a part of Europe's big tournament? And what's going to make next week so special is to see Real Madrid and Chelsea play one another in a game of real consequence. The Super League will see them facing all the time in games that could essentially not matter. It could take away some of the significance, some of the importance of these special super team matchups. And you also think of the emotional aspect of it. The significance of a Champions League final, of a Champions League trophy. How some of the players who are on the field now grew up dreaming of one day being in that scenario, being in that Champions League final. Like I said, a lot more to develop in this story. I truly hope that the governing bodies of football find a way to make sure that they do not challenge the integrity of the game and that if the Super League is created, that domestic championships and international competition isn't affected and players are able to compete in all forms of this game. I would love to hear your thoughts on the Super League, what it could mean for football, and I'll certainly be keeping track of this story as it develops. And now to the PGA Tour. Of course, we had the Masters last week, but the tour keeps moving through the season. The RBC Heritage was this weekend, Harbortown Golf Links in Hilton Head, South Carolina. Just a short drive from Augusta, and it is one of the favorites among tour players. A lot of big names carried over from last week. 
And the big story from the week was that of Stuart Sink. Sink is 47 years old, and he had a great week at Augusta last week, but an even better one at Harbortown. Sink held a five-shot lead going into Sunday's round, 18 under. Colin Morikawa, who was paired with Sink on Sunday, was the closest at 13. Manuel Grillo at 12, and a couple at 11 under as well. Colin completely collapsed on Sunday, but Sink held strong. The lead never really wavered, and he, with his son Reagan on the bag, captured the victory on Sunday. The father-son make a great player caddy team on the course. They discuss every shot in such great detail before playing it. Stewart said that Regan's really helped him with planning in advance, having a game plan before hitting that first tee shot on Thursday, and just reacting to every detail, every shot, executing their plan from then on. And it's really worked for Stuart. He and Regan won just back in September of 2020. Sink's first victory since 2009 when he won his first and only major championship, the British Open. So nearly 11 years between victories. And now Sink has found success again on the tour. It's great for Sink to find success like this late in his career. And it's truly special to see him share the success with his son on the bag. There's a moment from the event that took place on Saturday, however, that I want to talk about. Siwoo Kim, South Korean PGA Tour Pro. He won just in January at the American Express event held in La Quinta, California. He's also the youngest ever players champion. He won at TPC Sawgrass in 2017 when he was just 21 years old. Siwoo was paired with Matt Kuchar on the third round on Saturday. Siwoo was at the par 4 third hole, and he had a good look at birdie from just off the fringe of the green, severe downslope leading to the hole. Kim drew his putter back, gets the ball through the fringe just before the green, and once it got onto the green, it started rolling down, and it just looked like it had the perfect line, double breaking and just trickling to the center of the cup. Now, just a couple of inches out, the ball's still rolling, it's about to drop, and then it stops. Both Kim and Kucher were surprised, vocal, that the ball had stopped. Kim said, no way. And Matt Kucher replied back, I agree, no way. I mean, and so they start walking up to this ball. I mean, we're talking a tenth of an inch, just dangling on the edge of this cup. And as they approached the ball, Matt was very vocal and said, that ball's still moving. They were staring at this ball hanging on the edge, kind of dipping down. And you could see Siwoo was visibly dejected because he knew the ball was rolling, but he probably needed to just tap it in. Kucho kept saying the whole time, that ball's moving, that ball's moving. And he was right. After about 40, 45 seconds of watching this ball without any assistance, it dropped in the hole. Immediately after Matt said they'd have to call an official, and he's right, a ruling would have to be made about the amount of time and if hitting a moving ball on the putting service would have been allowed in that situation so the official made his way over assessed the situation and made the ruling that a penalty stroke would have to be incurred on Kim's score rule 13.3a states that the player is allowed a reasonable time to reach the hole and 10 more seconds to wait to see whether or not their ball will fall in the hole take a listen to the conversation that actually took place with rules official Stephen Cox and Matt Kucha and Siwoo Kim take a listen to this De- definitely exceeded time, but as I go up there, I go, this ball's moving. I could tell it's moving. It took a long time, but could tell. We, we kept watching and go, I'm telling you, it's moving. Yeah. And it did fall in. But beyond, by the time you'd had reasonable time to reach the hole and 10 seconds beyond that point, it still dropped in after that point in time. Yes, but I would I would swear to you, that, that, that part is correct, but I would swear to yeah. you, like I stopped him, I said, your ball is moving. Oh, like... 
always thought of that's the, the, the mechanics of the rule work that even though that ball may be in motion at uh, that point in time the, the player would be entitled to either tap it in and in your case you waited but because you waited beyond 10 seconds that ball would be but what's the thing because uh, he never the, we think the ball was still moving and he never used his club so what score would he make because it was longer than 10 seconds, yeah. you, the, the, the additional stroke would be added to your score. And that's Even though the ball is moving. Yeah. You can't yeah. hit a moving ball, correct? But in this situation, the rules are modified because you could argue that there comes a point in time that we've got to play that golf ball, and that's why we put that time limit on it. Wow. Yep, wow. that's where it is. I, I was certain it was, and I'm certainly on Are you certain that it was beyond the 10 seconds? Because we can obviously yeah. review the... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you yeah. can... When's the 10 seconds yeah. start? Like, when you have... Well, a reasonable time to get to your... Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So if you, I mean, I can we can review it, but if, if you think uh, it's, it's then you just add on the additional strokes. Siwoo really kept his nerve during all of that. He was stoic during the ruling, and I commend him for it. A quick nod, and on to the next tee. Flipped out his scorecard, wrote down par, and just moved on. Kucha was even more upset about it, it seemed, than Siwoo. The rules official even had to ask if it was Kim's part or not. I really don't like this ruling. The ball dropped on its own volition. Sure, time ran out. But what what is that time limit really for? Is that about pace of play? Guys' routines setting up putts on the green take longer than this ball dropping into the cup. And while they knew time had ran out, there's really no accurate clock or way to have an accurate clock on a golf course like this. During the clip, you can tell that Siwoo is edgy because he, he knows that time's potentially running out and he doesn't really have control over it. But Matt keeps insisting the ball's moving, the ball's moving. And he's working under the pretense of you can't hit a moving ball on the putting green. Rules are rules and look, they need to be followed. But I hate it when they get conflated or, or when the argument for implementation of the rule takes more away than what the actual rule brings to the game. By the time the rules official had made it all the way down to the hall, conversations regarding all of it, there's more time spent talking about this putt than the actual long amount of time that it took for the ball to drop in the cup. Standing over a moving ball, you can't hit a moving ball, but if the ball's been moving for more than 10 seconds, you have to move it, but then you have to hit it, but then there's no clock present, so you don't actually know how much the actual maximum time is. I think this rule's ridiculous, and the ruling on this specific moment should have been lifted. Siwoo, like I said, was stoic. He was far less upset about it than I would have been if I were in this moment, and I commend him because on the very next hole, he made a 43-foot putt for birdie, and that one dropped straight in the cup. I love that. Even harder putt than the last one. I think the ball dropped in the cup. He didn't touch it. Give him a birdie. <laughs> That's how I viewed it. I feel like there was so much more hoopla around this moment than there should have been, and, and what actually happened was so much more exciting than what how it all played out. So it was a shame, in a way, that Siwoo lost that birdie, but again, good on him for making that 43-footer. PGA Tour heads to New Orleans. The Zurich Classic starts on Thursday. Well, that's it for this week in sport on the All-American Brit podcast on Believe Podcasting Network. Be sure to follow me at AABritPod on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. I really appreciate it. As always, I am your host, Johnny McEwen. And until next time, take care. For 
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.